pretty sure that uh, everyone here uh, has heard of uh, the pastor uh, Richard Vermbrand. I'm pretty sure about that because I'm fairly sure I've mentioned him a few times. I know James has as well. Uh, but Richard Vermbrand was a pastor in Romania in the last century uh, when Romania was under communist rule. And he was arrested uh, by the Communist Party and he spent a number of years in prison. And uh, after he was released, he wrote many books, which we can still read today, where he told of his experiences. And he writes of one experience he had while in uh, the prison um, in Romania. And he was in prison with a number of other men, some believers and some not believers. And one of the men he was in prison with was a Christian leader who, even in the prison, shone, as it were, with Christ's love. Uh, he would give off his rations to those who were more in need than he was, even in the prison. Uh, he was incredibly kind and gracious to those who were with him in the prison. Uh, but one day, one of the unbelievers, one of the people who did not believe, did not trust in Christ in the prison, uh, they uh, were speaking with this Christian leader. And uh, they asked him, what is Jesus like? What is Jesus like? I don't know what you would respond if someone asked you that question, but uh, this old pastor, uh, he said, Jesus is like me. Jesus is like me. I'm not sure if you would give that response. That was the response that he gave. And the unbeliever responded, if Jesus is like you, then I love him. If Jesus is like you, then I love him. Now you might hear that and you might think, well, that, that pastor went a little bit too far. <laughs> Surely we, we don't point to ourselves, we point to Christ. But... I'll just suggest to you that that pastor was, to some extent at least, a little bit closer to the New Testament than perhaps we often are. Because Jesus himself said, didn't he? He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Uh, at other points, Paul said, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. There is a sense in which all believers should reflect something of the love of Christ to those they are among. Unbelievers should look at us and see something of Christ in us. And that is the mark that we are Jesus' disciples. Uh, Jesus himself said, didn't he? He said, you are the light of the world. You might say, no, 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 Jesus is the light of the world. But Jesus is in heaven, and he lives through us if we are his disciples. And so we, in that sense, are the light of the world. In the same way that the moon reflects the light of the sun, 
The source of the light is the sun, yet the moon shares its light. In a similar sort of way, the church of God should reflect the glory of Christ and the love of Christ in a similar way to the moon reflecting the light of the sun. The Bible doesn't say that all men will know we are his disciples because of our, because of our quick minds. Some of you are thinking that's just as well. Um, the Bible doesn't say that God will know, that people will know that we are his disciples because of our impressive clothing or our impressive churches or our cultural relevancy. Uh, there's a whole host of things the Bible doesn't say um, people will know by them that we are Christ's disciples. Instead, the Bible says people will know that we are Christ's disciples by our love for one another. That is the family likeness. That is the way you can distinguish a true believer from a false. You might believe all the right things. You might ace whatever Bible test you are given. You might know everything that is possible to know. And yet, if you do not have love, it's meaningless. That's exactly what Paul wrote in this chapter, wasn't it? Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. I might be very eloquent, Uh, We might speak with wonderful words. We might be able to sing beautifully. But if we don't have love, it's just like a noisy gong. Uh, He says in verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Uh, I might have all sorts of wisdom. I might have all sorts of knowledge. I might know the, backwards, the Bible backwards, forwards, and sideways. But if I don't have love, it's useless. Or look at verse 3. It says, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. I can be very religious. I could give money to charity. I could do all sorts of outwardly good things. But if I do not have love on the inside, it means nothing. That's the central importance of love. Love is how we know that someone has been transformed by Christ. Uh, The Bible is very clear. Uh, We're not saved by loving others. Uh, You can't love anyone enough to make up for the sins that you have committed. Um, We're already enemies with God. There's nothing we can do to bridge that gap by ourselves. The only hope we have is God stepping out in love and grace towards us, us accepting his love, receiving his grace by what Jesus did by dying for us on the cross. And then what God does is he fills our hearts with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a free gift. And the Holy Spirit himself teaches us how to love. That's why love 
is the distinguishing mark of a true believer because the only way we can love as we ought is to have the Holy Spirit who only is given by a gift, as a gift to those who come to Christ asking for forgiveness because of what he did for them on the cross. And that's why the New Testament is full of commands to love because that is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. If you are a believer this evening, and I trust that many of us are, if not all, uh, then your job description is to love. That is, I could almost put it, that is your only purpose, ultimate purpose, for remaining on earth. uh, To love those around you, particularly God's own people. And this whole chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is Paul teaching us what love looks like. And what I'd like to do is uh, just spend uh, the rest of our time just looking in a little bit more detail what love is to spur us on to love one another and to love others. Um, But I don't want it to be just uh, a kind of a stick to beat us with. You should be more loving. We all know that. But I want to look at how Christ has shown his love to us and how by looking at Christ's love for us, that will motivate us to show love to others. That's what Jesus himself said, wasn't it, in John 13, 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to know how to love one another, look at how I have loved you. So that's what I'd like to do now with this for our time, is look and see how Jesus has loved us as a motivation to us all to love one another better. And you'll notice in this chapter, um, Paul uses many words to describe love, and it was tempting to Uh, go through each one, but then we might be here all night. So what I've done instead is to group them into uh, the big categories as I saw them. And you might find this useful to do yourself, uh, perhaps this evening. Uh, Go through all the words from verses 4 to verse uh, 8 and uh, put them into categories um, to see how Paul describes love. You might disagree with my categories, Uh, but trustfully they wouldn't be too different. And I've got four categories of love, Uh, four ways we can group all these words together that Paul says. Let's look at the first one. The first one is love is kind. Uh, Paul teaches us that love is kind. And now kindness is actually a really hard word to define, I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever tried to, uh, but try to think, what does kindness mean? We, we all know what it means. We all know when someone's kind and when someone's not very kind, but it's actually very hard to describe what it means. Uh, the dictionary says it's the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. Uh, it's the quality of being friendly, generous, and considerate. Uh, But I would suggest a a slightly different um, definition, though that one isn't wrong. 
But I would like to say that kindness is love put into action. Kindness is visible love. Now, we can all have love on the inside. We all know that feeling, don't we? Uh, the affection we have for uh, father or mother, brother, sister, son or daughter, a friend. Uh, we all know that feeling of love on the inside. But kindness is that love on the inside translated into love on the outside. And it manifests itself in kindness. That's why it's the kind of thing that you recognize it when you see it and you know it when you don't see it. Uh, It's love on display. That's the kind of love we should have. And it's very clear, isn't it, when you read the Gospels, that Jesus is kind. Have you ever pondered that? Have you ever just sat and pondered on the kindness of Christ? He's not cruel. Uh, He's not tyrannical. He's not uh, aggressively harsh in the wrong way. Uh, He cooks breakfast for his disciples. Uh, He reaches out to pick up Peter from sinking. Uh, He tells the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you. Jesus is kind. His love didn't stay merely on the inside. It manifested itself on the outside. And perhaps the best example I can think of is uh, his feeding of the 5,000. Uh, do you remember how it says, I think it's all the Gospels, it speaks of the feeding of the 5,000. But it says how Jesus looked on the crowds and he saw they were hungry. He saw, I think one of the Gospels says they were fainting because they lacked food. And it says Jesus had compassion on them, and he fed all of them. Miraculously, Jesus fed 5,000 people. But the remarkable thing is that in John's gospel, we're told that he then taught the crowds that we shouldn't labor for bread that perishes. Uh, He says bread goes moldy, Uh, search for living bread. But he taught that after he had fed them. Why did he do that? He did it because he was compassionate to them. He knew they were hungry. He didn't just say to them, don't worry about bread, search for the living bread. No, he knew they were human. He knew they were flesh and blood. He knew that they were suffering with hunger. And so he fed them, and then he pointed them to a better bread, a living bread, a bread which wouldn't go moldy, a bread which lasts forever, which was he himself. Nevertheless, you see his kindness. You see his compassion and his care. Uh, As one of the Psalms says, God remembers our frame. He knows that we are but dust. Isn't that wonderful to ponder? God remembers that you are dust. He knows your weaknesses. He doesn't excuse your sin. Nevertheless, he remembers our weaknesses. Uh, Who knows how many times today Christ has shown kindness to you uh, by withholding you from some situation where you would have stumbled and where you would have fallen. Uh, Who knows how he's orchestrated the events of your life today 
to prevent you from doing something catastrophic. Perhaps in heaven we will know. Perhaps in heaven we will see all the ways in which Christ has demonstrated his kindness to us. That's the kind of saviour Christ is. He's kind and he is sympathetic to our weaknesses. And so if Christ is like that to us, uh, how much more should we be like that to each other? Um, That's why the Apostle John, in 1 John, uh, he says, Do not love people uh, in word only, but in deed and in truth. It's very easy to say to someone, be warmed, be filled. Uh, It's very easy to say the words. Uh, In some ways, it's easy to feel a kind of sympathy for someone. But then to translate that sympathy into action, that's more difficult. But that's the kind of love which Christ had for us. It was the kind of love which took him from heaven down to earth. And it's the kind of love we should have for one another. Not a hidden love. Not a love which is real on the inside but doesn't ever show itself on the outside. But a love that is kind. So that is the first category of love in this chapter. Love is kind. Let's move on. Uh, The second category that I've um, noted in this chapter is love is generous. Love is generous. Uh, Let's just stay with the feeding of the 5,000 for a moment. Uh, We're told that Jesus uh, fed the 5,000 men, plus women and children, and he fed them, do you remember what it says? It says he fed them until they all had enough, till they were filled. He didn't just give them enough to tide them over until they could get home and eat something themselves. It says he gave them over and above what they needed, so each one had their fill. Uh, We're told there were 12 baskets left over. Uh, I like to think that there were 12 baskets left over uh, so that each of the 12 disciples had one each for them. Uh, They had been serving Christ all day. If you read the account, you learn that they had been already serving and doing Christ's bidding till that point, and they'd gone away to a desolate place to rest, and then the 5,000 people, the crowds come, and then they have to deal with that for the rest of the day. And then Jesus tells them to feed them with five loaves and two fishes. Uh, They're tired. They feel weak. They feel perhaps inadequate. But Jesus gives them over and above what they need because Jesus is generous. Uh, It's easy to forget that sometimes. Uh, Sometimes we think of Jesus as being a bit miserly. uh, That he gives us just what we need to live, but no more. That's not what the Bible teaches. Christ is generous with his resources. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. It says, God is able to make all all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. I love that verse. Did did you hear how many times Paul uses words like all and every? He says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every 
good work. In context, what Paul is teaching in this passage is he's encouraging the Corinthian believers to be generous with their money. Uh, He's saying, I'm gathering money for a collection for the um, Christians in poverty in Jerusalem. There's a famine. Uh, They need help. They need resources. And he's encouraging the Corinthians to give to the cause. And he's saying to them, don't be afraid to give because God is able to make all grace abound towards you. In other words, don't scrimp and kind of be miserly in your giving as though God himself is like that because God is able to more than make up for whatever we give in service of him. The Bible says, doesn't it? I'm trying to remember the top of my head now what the proverb is. Uh, I think the proverb is some of the lines of uh, he who lends to the poor, he, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. He who, gives to the poor, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. In other words, God always pays his debts, what debts he has, speaking figuratively. So if you give to the poor, God is not going to let you suffer as a result because God himself is generous. Do you see the application of that in your own life? Uh, Don't be afraid to be generous with your resources, with your time, with your energy. Because we have a saviour who makes sure there are 12 full baskets left over after we have been serving him all day long. Uh, That's the generous God we have, and it allows us to be generous with each other. So we've seen those two categories so far. Love is kind. Love is generous. But let's move on. We see also love is patient. Love is patient. Uh, I once heard a story of an old man who was sitting in his car with his wife. He was an elderly man and he had an elderly wife. And they just returned from a shopping trip. But this man's wife had Alzheimer's. And uh, he was trying to persuade her to come into the house. But she wouldn't get out of the car. She wanted to go home. But home for her wasn't the house they lived in. Home for her was the home she had 30, 40 50 years before. And so she wouldn't get out of the car. She outright refused to get out of the car and to go into this strange house as she saw it. And after a while, their son uh, came out of the house and he asked his dad how long they had been out there, how long they had been in that car. And his father replied, oh, Only about two hours. For two hours, this husband had been lovingly seeking to persuade his afflicted wife to come into the house. Isn't that a beautiful picture of patience? The patience that husband had with his wife. But that's the same sort of patience that Christ had for his disciples um, sticking with, again, the feeding of the 5,000, but just afterwards. Uh, do you remember how the disciples went on a trip with Jesus across the Sea of Galilee? Uh, but they forgot to bring bread with them. 
This was just after Christ had fed the 5,000, um, and they were crossing over the Galilee, and Jesus said to them, beware the bread or the leaven of the Pharisees. He was teaching them to beware what the Pharisees taught. But when he said that, they thought he was rebuking them. They thought he was saying, oh no, he's realized we didn't bring bread, and he's rebuking us for not bringing bread with us. And Jesus responds, and he says, uh, when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets left over were there? And they say, 12. And he said, when I fed the, uh, was it the 7,000, how many, or so 4,000, how many uh, baskets were left over then? And they said, seven. And Jesus says, how is it you don't understand? <laughs> Jesus says, I have more than enough for you. You don't need to worry about the bread that you have forgotten. And I don't know what the word to describe it is, but Jesus is almost frustrated with them. Uh, he's frustrated in whatever the godly way of being frustrated is, if that makes sense. He has to bear with them. He says, how long must I bear with you? And yet Jesus did. He bore with his disciples, with all their weakness, with all their confusion, with all their sin when they would argue amongst themselves who was going to be the greatest. Jesus bore with them. Uh, as it says in John's Gospel, those he loved, he loved to the end. Regardless of how much pain and suffering it caused Christ, he was patient with his disciples. How much more so is that true of us? Uh, how many times have you let down Christ? It's countless, isn't it? Uh, how many times have we made the same mistake over and over and over and over again? And yet Jesus says to us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus is patient with us, as he was also with the disciples. And if Jesus is so patient with us, uh, can't we be patient with others? It's not always easy, is it? <laughs> Living uh, with other people, people frustrate us. Uh, people make the same mistakes over and over again. We don't understand the way other people think sometimes. We don't know how, understand how they can be so thoughtless, uh, how they can say and do the things they say and do. But are we not like that with Christ? And yet does he not show patience with us? So that should help us to be patient with each other. One of the most helpful things uh, I ever read was from a, a Christian counsellor who said this, uh, he said, a troubled person is a person to love, not a problem to fix. And people often change slowly and struggle deeply. That's true, isn't it? Uh, we often think people should change much quicker than they do. Uh, we think that our rebuke is enough and they should all be fixed after that point. But it doesn't work like that. Uh, people struggle deeply and change slowly. Christ is patient with us, and so can we not be patient with others? So we've seen, uh, love is kind, love is generous, love is patient. But lastly, we see that love is humble. 
Love is humble. Now, I sometimes wonder uh, what Jesus would do if he came among us. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, what would Jesus do if he stepped into this church? And the honest answer is, I don't know. I don't know what Jesus would do. Uh, but I strongly suspect that whatever he would do, he would serve us in some way. Because that's what he did when he was on earth. You remember how he took a towel and the Bible says he girded himself. He got himself ready for service and he knelt down and he washed his disciples' feet. Now we're so familiar with that picture, aren't we? But perhaps we don't realise what a kind of horrifying picture that is almost. Jesus, the creator of the universe, the king, the master of these disciples, gets down and acts like a servant. And he washes his disciples' dirty feet. Because that's the kind of saviour we have. But you might say, well, well, that was when Jesus was on earth. Uh, That's when Jesus, before he died on the cross, and then he was a servant, but now he is a glorified king. He would never do something like that now. Well, look at the Bible. Uh, Look at what Luke's gospel says. Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 35 onwards. Uh, In Luke chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus tells us a parable, and he tells a parable of what will happen to those servants Christ's servants who he finds working when he comes. He says this in Luke chapter 12, verse 25. He says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat, And he will come and serve them. I don't think there's any more amazing parable in the Gospels. Jesus is teaching there that when he returns, and if he finds us alert, ready, waiting for him, then when he comes back, he will put us at table, and he will gird himself and serve us like he served the disciples at the Last Supper. I don't know about you, but that almost seems wrong to me. If that wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't dare say that. The idea of Christ resurrected, ascended, sitting at the right hand of God, humbly getting down from his throne and serving us. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus himself says. Because that's the kind of saviour Jesus is. He is humble all the way through. He wasn't just humble for a time when he came to this earth. Humility is his very nature. As he says in Matthew chapter 11, I am meek and lowly of heart. It's not just a show put on like the politicians do. I don't know if you've been watching this. Uh, stuff, But you see these politicians try to answer questions and they try to look like uh, men and women of the people, don't they? And they talk about their orders and McDonald's and whatnot. And it's perfectly obvious they've not been to McDonald's anyway, in years. But they try to put on this show, don't they, of being 
men and women of the people. They try to put in this show of humility because it wins them votes. But that's not what Jesus is like. That is who Jesus is. He is humble. And if Christ is willing to serve us, can't we be willing to serve each other? Ultimately, that's why we come to church. Uh, We don't come to church primarily just to be fed ourselves, though we do come for that. Uh, The Christian life isn't a selfish life of just getting what we can out of it. The Christian life, first and foremost, is a life of service for others. Uh, As Christ said in Mark 9.35, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. Because Christ's teaching was, the way up is down. Uh, The way to be ruler of all is to be servant of all. Because love is humble. And I hope in closing that is an encouragement uh, to each of us here. Uh, I know all of us, in our own different ways, seek to serve Christ if we are a believer. And if you are serving Christ, no matter how humble that might be, it might be in a way which nobody else sees, which nobody else appreciates. But that is meaningful to God. That is meaningful to Christ. He saw that widow who put her last might into the treasury boxes. And nobody else saw it, but Jesus saw it, and he noted it, and it's recorded in the Bible for us to read today. And so all your little acts of service, whatever they might be, they are noted by Christ, and they bring a smile to his face. Isn't that a wonderful motivation to want to serve him more? to serve others more, to give your life and lay down your life for others more? Because Christ sees it, and it brings a smile to his face. Uh, It doesn't save us. Uh, Heaven is a gift. It doesn't give us extra credit with God. Again, heaven is a gift. But it brings a smile to his face. Because by those things we demonstrate that we are his disciples. So I trust uh, those few thoughts are helpful to us uh, as we seek to love one another better, to remember that love is kind, love is generous, uh, love is, I can't remember the third one now, (laughs) love is patient and love is humble. And let's seek to model these things for others as Christ has shown them to us. And with those thoughts, uh, I've chosen as our final hymn, uh, a hymn which reminds us again of Christ's ongoing love for us. And to remind us that it's not about our love for him which wins our acceptance with God, but it's Christ's love for us which gives us a right standing with him. So let's stand to sing now, 258, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. So let's stand to sing 258.